It's easy to see the connection between our thoughts, moods, and emotions, but it's not so easy to monitor those thoughts in order to change how we feel. Hi, welcome to Your Great Journey. Each week we offer you brief tips, techniques, and insights to help you move in positive directions and master big change. For more information, please visit yourgreatjourney.com. Your Great Journey is brought to you by audiobook publisher Wetware Media. Wetware Media publishes a wide variety of personal transformation audiobooks available from any major online audiobook retailer. For more information, please visit wetwaremedia.com. That's W-E-T-W-A-R-E-M-E-D-I-A.com. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the audiobook, Things Might Go Terribly Horribly Wrong, A Guide to Life Liberated from Anxiety, by Kelly Wilson and Troy Dufresne. You can plan and strategize and keep your eye on the horizon watching for trouble. But there's nothing you can do that will protect you from the fact that things might, when you least expect it, go terribly horribly wrong. Have you ever thought that if you could just get your anxiety to go away, you could get on with the business of living your life? Well, maybe or maybe not. Maybe anxiety doesn't need to go away in order for you to live your life fully, vitally, with richness and purpose. This audiobook shares some essential tools for changing the way you think about anxiety and the role it plays in your life. In this excerpt, Kelly Wilson and Troy Dufresne argue against the traditional method for escaping anxiety, changing your thoughts. You'll appreciate their witty and well-chosen anecdotes and learn that there's a reason that telling yourself there's nothing to worry about only seems to make you worry more. There's an old campfire story about a nervous man who's afraid of the dark, living by himself in a run-down house. Every night, he lies awake, terrified by every bump and creak he hears. Finally, in a desperate attempt to calm his nerves, he buys a pistol. At first, the weapon seems to do him some good. He still doesn't sleep soundly much of the time, but when he's the most scared, he reaches under his pillow, pulls out the pistol, and aims it at the door. After a while, when nothing comes bursting in upon him, he feels a little better. He slips the gun back under the pillow and eventually falls asleep. This arrangement works out for a time, but one sultry night, the man wakes up from an uneasy dream. Everything is silent. Maybe too silent. The light of a full moon is streaming through the window as he looks around the room. He's about to put his head back on the pillow when he looks to the foot of the bed where, to his great horror, he sees two eyes shining evilly up at him. His heart races and he doesn't dare to breathe. Slowly, slowly he reaches for the pistol. He points the barrel of the gun right between the eyes and wraps his finger around the trigger. After a moment, he finds his voice. Get out, he cries, or I'll shoot. The thing at the end of the bed just stares back at him, icy and unblinking. I mean it, he shrieks again. He bolts upright in bed, whereupon the thing starts to lunge toward him. He fires one shot. And then he shrieks again, for he has just shot his big toe clean off. 
which, like its counterpart on the other foot, had been sticking out of the covers, the nail reflecting the moonlight like the eye of some ravening monster. Going down with a thinking ship. It's a silly old story, mostly good for scaring the kids at Halloween. But its premise is relevant to our discussion in this chapter, and it's not because the hero of the story is apparently an anxiety sufferer. His story interests us most when we consider the mental quirk that led him to shoot off his toe. The man in the story maims his foot because he thinks his big toes are actually the eyes of some monster that has come to eat him up in the night. And by shooting at the monster, he hopes to drive it away, kill it, or otherwise prevent it from doing him harm. It's a simple enough formulation. Monsters are bad. If one shows up, do what you can to get away from it, or, barring that, make it go away. His thinking doesn't stand up to much scrutiny, though, if we puzzle it through from the comfort and security of our couches, or wherever it is you're sitting and listening. Is our hero familiar with how monster eyes look in the dark? Is he, in fact, accustomed to finding monsters lurking at the foot of his bed? Or even accustomed to encountering them at all? If his experience is anything like that of the rest of us, the answer is no. And even if you take the leap and grant the existence of monsters, would shooting in the direction of your own feet be the best course of action even if there happened to be one down that way? Reason it however you like, but the story stays the same. Our hero sees two round, shiny things at the end of the bed, thinks they're the eyes of a monster, and bang, he acts accordingly. We can abstract this situation into a formulation. I thought X, so I did Y. Where X equals some scary thought, and where Y equals some act that has consequences for our lives or the lives of others. This formulation isn't limited to campfire stories. If you doubt this, just point a web browser to your favorite news search engine and type in Shot Mistaken Identity you'll find that the formulation, I thought he was someone else so I shot him, is tragically common. You can take your investigations further if you like. Go to your local library or jump on the internet and see if you can find an example of the formulation, I think bad blood is the cause of certain diseases, so I'll treat your sore throat, fever, and chills by making deep incisions in your forearms, which I will allow to bleed freely for some time. Here's a hint to get you started. Find a biography of George Washington and flip to the end. These examples are theatrical and flamboyant, but this formulation isn't limited to nighttime misadventure and 18th century quackery. Consider these examples. I think I'm unlikable and I bore people, so I'll skip that party I really want to go to. I think I'm irresponsible and immature, so I could never be a good parent. I'm lazy and really pretty stupid so I won't take on that challenging project at work or speak up in the next staff meeting. Hmm, it does appear that there's a connection between what we think and how we feel and act. And some of our thoughts do seem directly relevant to the things we feel anxious about in life. Maybe we're really on to something now. Treading water in the tide of your thoughts. Let's not be hasty, though. It's tempting to interpret the previous section to mean that our feelings of anxiety are the result of inaccurate thinking, with believing that there are monsters at the foot of the bed and whatnot. 
and we might take this realization as a prescription to figure out which of our thoughts are accurate and which aren't, and then set about to change them. And if we did think this way, we'd be in very good company. We'd be coming to some of the same conclusions as many of the best minds in psychology during the latter half of the 20th century. These decades were marked by the rise of the various cognitive therapies, approaches to psychotherapy that looked to distorted or irrational thinking as the possible cause for problems such as anxiety, depression, and so forth. These approaches were very significant advances to psychotherapy at the time. They extended therapists' repertoires well beyond the Freudian directive to look for the causes of mental disturbance and unconscious emotions and drives, and they developed a strong base of scientific evidence to support the conclusion that psychotherapy really did something to improve the mental health of the people who received it. It's very easy to see the connection between our thoughts and our moods, emotions, and so forth. It turns out, though, that it's not so easy to monitor, manipulate, or modify those thoughts in order to change how we feel. If we consider the examples of the Monster Eye guy and the revolutionary-era surgeon, it's pretty easy for us to conclude that the problem lies with the X in our formulation, with the inaccurate thoughts that lead to the regrettable actions. If you think something cockamamie, that your toe is a monster's eye or that bad blood causes the common cold, you're apt to do reckless and dangerous things like shooting yourself in the foot or bleeding your already weakened and dehydrated patients to death. And this extends easily to the more mundane examples we offered of thoughts you might have about yourself. If you think you're unlikable and boring, despite the fact that any number of people find you lovable and fascinating, you're likely to hide yourself away and avoid parties. The firmly held conviction that you're a feckless adolescent, irrespective of the fact that you pay your bills on time and have a nurturing streak a mile wide, will dissuade you from making the choice to start a family, and so forth. The erroneous contents of your thoughts seem to be the source of the problems, so change X and you'll change Y looks like a pretty good plan. Change the content of your error-ridden or distorted thinking, and you'll change the way you feel, and, thereafter, the way you interact with the world. At least it sounds great. But here's an example to consider. Imagine a man who has a history of suffering from episodes of panic. From time to time, while he's in the middle of what appears to be a normal, non-threatening situation, he's overwhelmed with the idea that he's in some kind of danger that he can't easily escape. He feels weak and nauseated. He starts to hyperventilate, and he feels intense, stabbing pain in his chest. He thinks, in short, that he's having a heart attack, which leads him to panic more, which in turn makes the symptoms worse. Now further imagine that this guy actually is at very high risk for a heart attack. Four of his coronary arteries are 80% blocked, and what he feels in his chest is actually angina. In this case, his thoughts contain content that's actually accurate, although they still work in the same way as inaccurate ones to throw gasoline on the fire of his anxiety. Maybe the content of our thoughts isn't the end of the story after all. And even if we suspend our judgment about that issue for a while, there's another, bigger problem. Evaluating a thought for accuracy and actually changing it are two very different things. All of us are prone to making big deals out of ideas that, in the end, turn out to be pretty minor. If you struggle with anxiety, this scenario isn't foreign to you. 
the presentation you dread for months comes and goes without so much as a hiccup. The plane brings you home safely from your tropical vacation, and the worst part of the flight was the food. Yes, you can tell yourself that there's nothing to worry about. We suspect you've done a fair bit of that in your life. But maybe that telling led you to spend hours trying very hard to figure out whether or not there was really something worth worrying about. And, well, there you were, worrying again. If you've spent any time and effort trying to change, stop, or mitigate your thoughts, how has that worked for you? If you're like a lot of people, it probably hasn't worked very well. Thanks for listening to this excerpt from the audiobook, Things Might Go Terribly Horribly Wrong, A Guide to Life Liberated from Anxiety. You can purchase the complete audiobook from any major online audiobook retailer. If you'd like more information, please visit yourgreatjourney.com. Please be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, please rate it and review it. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Your Great Journey is brought to you by audiobook publisher Wetware Media. Wetware Media publishes a wide variety of personal transformation audiobooks available from any major online audiobook retailer. For more information, please visit wetwaremedia.com. That's W-E-T-W-A-R-E-M-E-D-I-A dot com.